Most of you couldn't see them, but that's Blake and Jen McKinney <laughs> behind, behind the piano. Uh, I, uh, I feel like I should preach in a parka or something here. Uh, my pulpit's gone. Everything's gone. I just feel so exposed up here. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Please join me in prayer as we open. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we turn to your word that you give to us illumination. That you help us to understand the words that are in the text before us. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, apply them to our lives that as we move out, we will be different. Convict us where we fall short of your glory, Father. And give us the assurance that your, the death of your Son has pardoned us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have two boys uh, about to turn six and about to turn four. And Andrea's parents, my wife's parents, recently got us a collection of books from uh, the publication of Smithsonian. And in this, in this collection of books is every plant and animal, insect, everything known to man. And my boys are particularly fascinated by every aspect of these books. They come home and they just read and read and read and read and read about every insect and every bug and every snake and lizard. And they're particularly fascinated by the ones that can kill them. That's the ones that just grab their attention the most, you know. <laughs> That's right. They should be. And so it just grabs their attention. They love to read. And so it's to the point now where Grayson can almost tell you that's not just a bird, it's this kind of bird. That's not just any kind of parrot, that's a particular kind of parrot. That's not just an eagle, that's a particular kind of eagle. That's not just a snake, it's this kind of snake. Now our backyard backs up to a large wooded area. And right at the back of our backyard is the children's playground. And so it's getting close to summer. And so we tell the kids, if you see a snake, run. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's a really simple instruction. If you see a snake, run. Now these books, I'm afraid, are backfiring on us. Because Grayson looks at me and he tells me, yeah, but what if it's a non-venomous gray rat? I'm sorry, no. <laughs> Let me just, I'm going to just stop you right there, Mowgli, all right? You don't talk to the jungle creatures. All right, don't try to identify their genus and their species. Just run. It's a really simple command. And I know, I know that there's some people in our congregation and you're snake lovers. I'm going to tell you this. I'm telling you this in love. We love you. We want you to come here. We love you. But you're strange. All right? I'm just being honest with you. You're a little bit weird. All right, we all know it. We all talk about it. It's okay. But you're out there saying, hey, snakes are harmless. Come on. They're harmless. In fact, you may even be saying, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. I promise you that's not true. 
If I found a snake in my yard, you would hear the squeal all the way down here. The reality is there are some animals in our world that do not make great pets. They just don't make great pets, and namely the ones that can kill you in one bite. Those typically don't make great pets. This morning, we turn our attention to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is going to focus on the sin of lust. And what he has to say about it is particularly apt for our time, I think. Because, like a venomous snake, this particular sin has creeped in through the doors of the church and it's injected every single one of us to some degree or another. And it's left many families in shambles. And it's left many more completely useless in leading their families in godliness. With that being said, let's look at our text this morning in Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better you, for you to, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. As I said, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and goes all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus is introducing us to the kingdom of heaven. So in that introduction to the kingdom of heaven, he gives us the character profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what we call the Beatitudes. It's laying out for us what the character that belongs in the citizen of heaven, what that person looks like. And then he's told us about how that citizen is to function in society. This person is to be a salt of the earth, a light to the world, to call people into repentance. This is how they're supposed to function in society. And now he's laying out how we should live as citizens of this kingdom. How then should we live? And so he's going through, laying out, taking the Old Testament law and demonstrating its true meaning for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. As we look at our text, there's an obvious pattern that Jesus kind of lays out of these laws that he's going through. First, there's the Old Testament uh, law or the current understanding of the Old Testament law that he, give, he gives to us. And it usually begins, you have heard it was said, and then he gives you the, the Old Testament law, the common teaching of the Old Testament law. And then he gives, after that, the clarification, or some people call this the antithesis, and it usually begins, but I say to you. So that's kind of the pattern that we're looking at as we go through Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then sometimes Jesus expounds further on that giving us more clarification as to what he really means or how we are to live. And so in our text this morning, he, he goes into to the links that we must go to to rid ourselves of sexual temptation. So this morning, there's really two observations that I want you to make from our text. And then I want to talk at length 
about some practical steps that we can go to to lead our families in holiness. The first point that Jesus makes is that adultery is a matter of a lustful heart. Adultery is a matter of a lustful heart. Look at verse 27 with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you every, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, last week Jesus took on the, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit murder, or thou shalt not murder. This week he's on to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And, and even kind of the tenth commandment, which is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. But it seems that these have historically been interpreted by the Jews at least with a little bit more wiggle room than Jesus is willing to give to us. Gives a lot more wiggle room, actually, in the traditional teaching of the Jewish law. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, has, has really been taught up to and around Jesus' day as condemning essentially a theft. It's like looking on something that is not yours and stealing it. So the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, were really teaching approximately the same thing. So the Jewish people would teach around Jesus' day. And so when you look at the prohibition on committing adultery and coveting your neighbor's wife, there's an assumption in both of those precepts. And that is that the person hearing the law is married. So then it must only apply to married people, right? So when you examine these written documents that we have of Jewish history leading up to and around Jesus' day, it appears that, that what they're teaching is not quite the intent that Moses had in mind when he gave the law. Obviously, the teaching was designed to preserve Israel's sexual purity in and around the cultures that seem to idolize sex. But then the teaching has been restricted to just a narrow slice of the population. So in other words, the married people, they can't go around gallivanting and, and taking what is not theirs, nor can they desire another person's wife. They can't look at her either. But the law really says nothing about an individual thinking things. So long as they don't act on it, and so long as that person isn't another person's wife. Of course, this is one issue with just law in general, isn't it? It, it tends to be the case that law creates loopholes. This is true of the Old Testament law as well. There's plenty of loopholes that are created, and conventional wisdom would tell you that it, the, if the law has a loophole, then more words are going to help plug that hole that's in the law. And it only serves to create more loopholes later on. As an example, I'm a fan of, oh, wait, kids, earmuffs. I'm about to say a bad word. I'm a fan of the NFL. I know, bad word in this town. For the last few years, there's been this running joke in the NFL that the referees are the only ones that don't know what a catch is. <laughs> That's been the running joke, and, it, and, it's fun, and it's true to some degree or another. 
What happened is there, there, we needed some more laws to govern what amounted to a catch, to a reception. And so instead of just saying it's a catch, they added a lot more rules. You had to do this and you had to do that and you can't do that, but you got to do this in order for it to be a catch. And so then we end up debating whether or not he caught it. And then we say, well, but did he make a football move? And then we ended up debating on what is a football move? What does that even mean? And why is that part of a catch? And in reality, if you were to strip all those rules away and you were to take an objective third party and they were to just watch what happens on a screen and you were to ask them, is that a catch? Most all of them would be able to agree on whether or not it was a catch. But the rules created this sort of weird loophole where now no longer can we even really determine what a catch is. Well, in a similar way, written law in the hands of sinful men will eventually be used to say whatever the sinful man wants it to say. He can make it whatever he wants it to be. Jesus takes the Pharisees to task on this exact thing, where the clear command is honor your father and mother, and they've somehow been able to determine a way of not having to honor their father and mother by overly honoring the Lord with their money. And Jesus says it's crazy. It's asinine. But exposing his audience to how the citizens of the kingdom of heaven should live, what Jesus is really doing is bringing about the spirit of the Old Testament law, demonstrating what's actually being taught here. So in doing that, Jesus says that the spirit of the seventh commandment is that even lust after another individual would be defined as adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think that should cause us to ask a question. And it's a question that needs to be answered. What does he mean by lustful intent? I need to know whether I've overstepped the line, don't I? What does it mean to have lustful intent? And there's a great danger in me defining what lustful intent means because of what I've just said. Because all of us, as natural legalists, are sitting in our pews going and, and, and even standing on the stage saying, well, wait a second, if I can define lustful intent this way, then I know when I'm not doing it. Then I can say, whew, that's not me. I'm not guilty of that. It's my opinion that in the ESV... It's unnecessarily vague. You see it says lustful intent there. If you're reading the NIV translation, I like that a little bit better. It says lustfully. That's it. It just leaves it really general. And I I think that's a better translation because the definition of the word that Matthew uses here is simply to have sexual interest in someone. That's it. It's that vague. To have that kind of interest in someone. If you have that kind of interest, you've already committed adultery. In other words, it's more than mere attraction. It's not just recognizing that this person is attractive, but it's still broad enough that it would implicate every single one of us in this room. And while the common teaching in Jesus' day would have been directed primarily at men, I think it would be safe to assume that this principle would apply toward women as well. Not just men, clearly. To look at a man with this kind of interest or desire. Now certainly it should be said, and it's possible, that a man who's guilty of lustful intent or lustfully looking at someone and a woman who's guilty of this same thing may have different kinds of thoughts. 
A man's might be more visual, a woman's might be more emotional, but the term is broad enough to encompass it all. I, don't, I think it would also be safe to assume that this isn't just married people that he's addressing. If it's sinful to have these thoughts about someone you're not married to, then that would seem to apply to anyone whether you're married or single. One reason that I think this must be true is that the teaching that Jesus is giving to us is essentially the law of the kingdom of heaven. How people function and operate in the kingdom of heaven. So just as when we're in eternity, we won't look at our brothers and sisters with lustful intent in our heart, so we shouldn't have lustful intent in our heart now towards them. So what we're seeing here doesn't have to be as extreme as lustful intent would indicate. Intent seems to mean that you have some plan, you concocted some scheme to get with this person. It doesn't seem to be that strong. It's not that extreme. It can be as mere as desirous, just thinking desirous thoughts about this person. Now, friends, which of us isn't squarely in the crosshairs of Jesus' teaching? Which of us in this room, if we're completely honest, aren't guilty of the sin of adultery or the sin of lustful intent? Now understand that Jesus' definition here is any image that pops into your brain that arouses this kind of interest, it leaves you in the throes of adultery, in the throes of sin. Now, it's important to put it in these terms because we're no longer in a society where you have to go to a scandalous place to see physical, very real people in this way. You are always only one click away. And you might be tempted to think, well, maybe it's only those risque sites. As long as I avoid those depictions, then I'll be okay. So it leaves out shows like Game of Thrones and many others that we seem to think might be okay because, look, it's depictions that are central to the story, right? These are meaningful. Those are ruled out too. In reality, you're fooling yourself if you think that's true and you're playing with fire. Any thought, even the momentary and passing ones, that is of sexual nature is in view here. Now listen, this isn't all that Jesus is going to say on this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, he's going to get to essentially the same thing, but there he changes it just slightly. He gives the same punishment of the cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot, gouging out the eye, but he changes it slightly to those that cause the temptation as well. It's not just the ones that are tempted, it's also the ones that cause the temptation. So lest a lady think to herself, well, I can dress however I want, and if it causes them to lust, that's their problem. I'm sorry, on judgment day, that will not hold water. And lest a man think, well, I can be as flirtatious and as engaging as I want to be, and if they get the wrong idea of our friendship, that's on them. I'm sorry, that won't hold water on Judgment Day either. No, sir. 
So then adultery is a matter of a lustful heart. But how then should we live? What should we do about it? Jesus is going to tell us. He says, do whatever is necessary to rid ourselves of lust. The second point. Do whatever is necessary to rid ourselves of lust. Look with me at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now you can clearly see that Jesus is using some extreme language here. And he's trying to shake us out of some kind of sinful stupor that we're in. And his words are designed to really rock our world. So, he, so we, we ask the question, okay, Jesus, so how, how serious is this? Should I begin my 35-step program next week to get rid of these kinds of lustful temptations? He says, no, I've got one step for you, and it begins right now. Gouge out your right eye. Cut off your right hand. Now, this is the same kind of language that we saw last week in regards to anger. Get rid of it immediately. Do whatever is necessary and wait no longer. But what's the motivation that he uses here in the text? Look at the text. What is the motivation that he uses for you? He says hell. Hell is the motivation. Hell is the thing that we're trying to avoid. Hell is the motivation here. It's judgment. We're so timid in our society today to talk about the consequences of hell. It's like we're trying to push away from it. Well, it's not all turn or burn. And surely there should be more to our gospel than simply turn or burn. But Jesus isn't nearly so timid. He says it's better that you lose a body part for the rest of your life than be thrown into hell. I think you would know. Judgment is real. And he's saying, believe me, whatever it costs you to avoid it, it would be beneficial for you. No matter what it takes. Now you might ask, tear out my eye, really? Cut off my hand? Surely Jesus isn't being literal here, right? Jesus is clearly using an image, obviously. He is using an image. And one of the reasons we know this is because he's just got done telling us that this sin begins in our heart. That your hand and your eye aren't the issue. Your heart is the problem. It begins with a lustful thought. So if we were to take him literally, that would be gouge out your heart, cut off your head, off your shoulders, essentially kill yourself. So we obviously know that's not what Jesus is getting at. Further, tearing out your right eye seems useless if your left eye is just as capable. Cutting off your right hand it seems to be useless if your left hand is capable. In reality, the right eye is the dominant eye for most people. And so with your eye, you look lustfully at someone. And then with your hand, your right hand is typically the most dominant hand for most people. And with it, you probably have, it probably has some connection to thinking about like stealing your neighbor's wife through lust, that you're reaching out with your hand and essentially stealing her. But regardless of what he means by using those precise body parts, why Jesus uses them is very clear. 
or that Jesus uses them is very clear. Take extreme measures to get rid of lust. That's his point. Take even the most extreme measures to get rid of lust. Brothers and sisters, we're in the midst of a sexual war that is claiming the lives of men and women, boys and girls, all over the world. Studies are coming out every single day about the dangers of the internet and the long-term effects that they have on people. I'm going to hit you with just some facts, okay? These are just recent studies that have come out, just a few numbers. This is, it comes from an article by Tim Challies uh, that's entitled 10 Ugly Numbers Describing Pornography Use in 2017. Okay, so this is last year. First one. At age 11, the average child has already been exposed to explicit images through the Internet. At age 11. Second one. 22% of explicit images consumed by, those pe- by people under 18 is consumed by those under 10. So of the consumption of people 18 and under, 22% are under 10 years old. Next. 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to internet-based pornography during their adolescent years. 93% of boys. 62% of girls. In two, next one. In 2016, people watched 4.6 billion hours of explicit videos at just one website. That's not counting all the rest of them. That's just one website. Next one. 61% of this content is watched on mobile phones. In the United States, it's as high as 70%. This is no longer strictly a computer issue. This is a cell phone issue. Next one. This one might surprise some of you. 33% of women age 25 and under go searching for these images at least once per month. 56% of women in that age group have gone looking for it at least one time in the past. Compared to 27% of those age 25 and older. Not only is it attacking younger and younger people, but it's going after women as well. We used to think this is just strictly a man's issue. It's not. It's men and women both are falling victim to it. Next one. 62% of teens and young adults have received an explicit image through text or whatever, or email or whatever. Meanwhile, 41% have sent one, usually to their boyfriend or girlfriend. It's becoming a part of the dating process. Last one. 80%, this is to me the biggest one, 80% of users feel no sense of guilt when looking at it. Just think about those for just a second. 80%. No sense of guilt. Friends, that's inside the church and outside. If you don't think that that's plaguing the people inside the church, you're kidding yourself. 
The point is that as a society, we've become comfortable making the serpent of lust a pet. We're fine with it. And now we give our kids phones that are internet capable, and we're shocked when one day we walk in and the snake has bitten our children. Why should that shock us? Why should that surprise us at all? Our parents of young children, especially you, need to hear me on this. There are few sins in the world that have the power to ensnare like sexual sin. It's one of the worst kinds of drugs. I see parents of all stripes that seem to have the implicit policy with their children especially when it comes to new social media platforms, that you can have it until I find out that it's bad, and then I'll take it away. That seems to be the implicit way we parent our children in today's generation. You can have it, but then when I find out it's bad, I'm taking it away. But you see, social media, those platforms are not built to keep your kids safe or your family safe. They're not built for that reason. They're built to get the user addicted. Exactly. They're built to keep the user on so as to earn as much money as possible through ad revenue. That's their only goal. So it should come as no surprise to you when one day you find out that Snapchat gives your kid near instant access to incredibly lewd images. It shouldn't surprise us. The serpent's telling you, I'm a serpent. What do you expect? Of course I'm going to bite you. Let me tell you, parental controls, not only are proven ineffective in most cases. But the social media platforms have no interest in giving you parental controls. Because as soon as they introduce parental controls, the young kids won't want to be on their platform anymore. And the standard metric of success in social media is how young of a generation are you getting. Facebook, you're capturing mostly middle-aged women. Up, you're out of date. You're going to die before too long. Snapchat, you're getting teenagers. That's great. But who's getting eight-year-olds? Who's getting six-year-olds? Let's give them kids' accounts. That's what we could do. Give the illusion of parental controls. But their business model is built on getting younger and younger kids addicted to their platform. Statistically speaking, this isn't just a kid's problem either. This issue is taking down fathers in the church left and right. Husbands. Men. It's not just taking men down either, it's taking women down in a progressively, more, uh, progressively more and more. And, and a fear of mine is that the reason we're so lax in regards to the rules that govern social media in our house is because we're using them privately ourselves. And we're going after these kinds of images on our own. And so we feel like hypocrites if we're to step over the line and say, yeah, but kid, you can't use them. Let me check your device because secretly, I don't want people checking my own device. The statistics bear that out. That that's what's happening. Men, we have to lead here. 
It's our job as men to lead our households in holiness. And if you're off in a fantasy world, then you'll never be of any use to the kingdom of God. Because a kingdom that's built on calling sinners to repentance will leave you effectively useless when you're a slave to sin. Satan knows this, by the way. And that's why he's coming after you. That's why he's destroying the family left and right. It's because of exactly that. So it should make us ask, well, then what do we do? What's our recourse? What step do we take now? Let's say I'm sitting here in in the pew and I'm thinking to myself, I am guilty of this. I know what he's talking about and I am guilty of this, but what do I do about it? How do I take Jesus at his word and cut off my hand and gouge out my eye? What does that look like in my life? There's going to be at least a few things that I think we should think about in terms of applying this to our lives. First is repent. Clearly repent. Now we say that word a lot, repent. But we rarely ever go through and actually define what it means. What does it mean then to repent? So one would be repent. One A would be confess your sin to God. Verbally confess. And this is borne out over the course of the Old Testament and New Testament. How does one repent? The first thing he does is confess his sin to God. Own it. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your husband's fault. It's yours. You made the choice to do it. Own it. Lord, I've done this. I'm sinful. Part of the reason that we do a prayer of confession in the middle of our surface is to, is to goad us to point us towards confession and to show us what it really is and point to the fact that we really need to do it. It's confessing your sin. It's owning it. If you're married, it's not just going to be confessing it to God. It's going to be confessing it to your spouse. You're one flesh and you've sinned against your spouse. You're going to need to confess it to them as well. And I know what your thought is or your thought might be if that's you. How could I possibly do this? You know what it might cost me? She might walk out on me. He might walk out on me. That might cost you a hand. might cost you an eye. Confession requires you come clean. Completely and totally. And your sin is not just against God. It's against your spouse. If you're single, I would suggest you confess it to a friend. A friend that you trust. A friend that you know. A friend that's spiritually on the same page as you so that they can hold you accountable. This is true of any sin, but in particular this one. 1B, what happens next in the repentance process? So I confess my sin, and then what happens? Cut off any access you have to going after that sin again. That would include some radical things sometimes. So in particular with this sin, that might mean I don't have a smartphone anymore. That might mean I don't have a TV anymore. That might mean I don't take my computer home from work. That might mean you as a parent go to the school and say, I'm sorry, we don't keep those kind of computers in our house. I don't want them to have that computer as part of their learning experience. And pushing back against the school system. It might mean that. And it might mean that your friends come over and go, hey, where's your TV? You got a regular old flip phone? Why? It's ridiculous. It's cutting off your hand. Doing whatever is necessary. 
But see, most people stop there. It's where most people stop. And what happens is your brain, your sinful flesh, naturally flees to the fastest way it can get back access to these things. It's a drug addiction. So you're going to find ways to go after it. What happens when a drug addict runs out of money? They start stealing. They're trying to find other ways of getting access to their drug. And this is no different. So most people stop there, but they're going to end up opening up pathways in other places. You have to go to the next step, which is to fill your life with holy things. It's not enough to just cut it off. You've then got to replace what void that, that thing was filling up or trying to. When it comes to lust, it's a competition of desires. What do you desire most? Do you desire temporary satisfaction? Or do you desire eternal joy in Christ? It's a competition. And every time you give in, you're telling it which one you desire most. Temptation is like a stray dog. You feed it with sin and it's going to grow stronger. But if you're a Christian... You have the Holy Spirit. And I don't care if the Holy Spirit was the size of a chihuahua. It can whoop that dog. The more you starve the big dog of temptation, the more you feed the Holy Spirit, the easier the victory is. It's hard to put into practice, but it's a very simple concept. So the first thing is repent. Second thing, is have conversations with your children early and often. Have open conversations with your children early and often. The statistics bear this out. This is boys and girls. This is not just boys. This is boys and girls. And if you're waiting until middle school to have these conversations, you're already too late. Open the conversations as early as you possibly can. It may not be a full-fledged conversation when they're five. But it might be helping them to understand what sin is at a very early age. And that they can always tell you what they're sinning in. What area of their life they're sinning in. And that you'll always love them. And that you'll always listen. And that you always have their best interest at heart. And continuing to open up those dialogues on and on, as older and older as they get, so that those conversations, is not just the talk, but it's constantly talking. And no matter what they've gone into, no matter what they've gone into, reassuring them, you love them, and you're here to give them what's best for them. Parents, I understand that for your kids, this might mean no smartphone. This might mean they don't know what's on Netflix. This might mean a lot of things. And there's a pressure on parents to have your child fit in. And you worry that by taking these things away, they're not going to fit in with their their social group. And that they're going to call them out. But it communicates to your child what cutting off their hand and gouging out their eye is about. last. Statistically, there's a sizable section of our church that doesn't struggle in this area. And statistically, some of those are going to be in the older crowd. And some of you may be thinking, I don't even know how to turn on my computer. I get it. I understand that. 
But you might also be tempted to think that this sermon isn't primarily about you, that it's about those people that are struggling with those issues, but that's not true. If this is not an albatross that's around your neck, and if your affections for the Lord are growing continually every single day, then you need to be discipling hundreds of people. You realize that? You need to be discipling hundreds of people. If you're not discipling people to follow you as you follow Christ, then no, this sermon isn't for other people because you're part of the problem. Amen. We've neglected what it means to actually disciple the generation below us and to apply these spiritual disciplines to their lives. So you're essentially riding on your moral high horse and you're looking down at your brother or your sister who's dying in the, in the quicksand and you're looking at them and you're saying, man, that looks tough. Let me know how it works out for you. If I'm honest, I'd rather have a small church of people that know that they're dying in quicksand than a mega church of people that are on their moral high horse. By the way, Jesus wants a kingdom filled with people that know that they're dying in, moral, in quicksand. You might be thinking, but man, it's so arrogant of me to presume that I have it all figured out, that I might go to someone and disciple them. I know what sins I struggle with. It doesn't happen to be this particular sin, but I struggle with many other sins. How can I reach out to somebody else and pretend that I have it all figured out and disciple them? That seems so arrogant. Your task, as given to you by the Lord himself, is to make and mature disciples for his glory. That's the purpose of the church, to make and mature disciples for his glory, to rightly worship God, and then to bring other people into that worship. What's arrogant is assuming that that applies to everyone but you. You need to confess your self-righteousness, climb down off your moral high horse, and offer your brother or your sister a tree branch that they may climb out. And that tree branch sounds like this. Hey, let's go get coffee next week. That's as hard as it is. Hey, let's go get coffee next week. Now, you may not know what sin they're dealing with. You may not know that they're struggling with any one sin in particular, but you go have coffee with them. You go have lunch with them. You sit down and talk with them. And before long, after building a relationship over time, you begin to hear what sorts of things that they're struggling with. And then you can begin to pour into their life the disciplines that Christ would have us give to them, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded of us. That's how discipleship starts, which is building a relationship. I think when you hear discipleship, so many of us think, oh, it means I'm going to lead a Bible study with somebody. It doesn't mean that. It might eventually one day lead to something like that, but quite often it's making your life available to them, that they may watch you, that they may search you, that they may examine you to ultimately follow you as you follow Christ. There's lots of discussion in churches about what sorts of things will kill a church. Whether it's money, or music, or size, lights, pizzazz, preaching, smoke. 
when you have the vast majority of your people not discipling somebody else, that will kill a church. Because it's the only task we're given. Make and mature disciples for his glory. And if we're not doing that, we deserve to die. So let's reach down to our brother and sister who's struggling. Not judge them, but lift them up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for some of us in this room are struggling. Lord, give them the gift of repentance. Allow them to see Christ as ultimate. Allow them to treasure you above all things. Allow them to be willing to cut off their hand or gouge out their eye, whatever that might mean in their life, so that this sin would not beset them anymore. Lord, as your people, forgive us for not discipling. Forgive us for neglecting the one responsibility that you've given to us. Give us the boldness to repent of that sin and to rectify it. begin doing the difficult work of sowing seeds and reaping harvest. Heavenly Father, we know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I pray that that would not be the case for Emmanuel Baptist Church, but that the workers would be many. And Lord, multiply the work by your grace, give us multiplication that we may see the fruits borne out in the lives of each person. That holiness result, devotion to you result from the work. But we know that we can't do this in and of ourselves. only through you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.